Good morning, Rock Harbor. Good, uh, good to be here this morning. Good to see all of you here. Glad you made the decision to be here this morning. Um, page 26 in your study guides. We'll get started here. So we're talking about God's covenant with Noah, and we've been talking. We just—it's been progressive, you know. We've been talking about Noah the last couple of weeks, and obviously we went through the flood and and everything that come with that, and. I mean, obviously that was a huge thing, and um, we understand that, you know, we talked about how God doesn't tolerate sin, and, and that when sin continues to go on, there's, you know, there's ramifications for that, which is judgment, and we obviously know that. Um, there's just a lot of things that we can we can look at in, um, in Noah's day that were going on, and obviously we should. We should draw lines and, and connect the things that were going on then uh, to the things that are happening now, and I'm not going to rehash that necessarily but I always want us to be conscious and aware that it's not a um, it's not something to be dismissed easily the times that we're living in it's not something to be dismissed it's definitely something that you know, should call for your attention we're very attentive to the times that we're living in. we're aware we should be aware that the times that we are living in now are surely looking like the days of Noah and that was spoken of in that this would look this definitely looks like the last days this is what this looks like. Um, I've been over this numerous times, um, and um, I was recently talking. I think it was Haven, I think maybe. Um, we were we had some discussion about you know the time frames that we were born in, you know, with Haven getting older too. Now I've always said it was me, you know. I've always said, man, the time that you know the time that we was chosen to live in, and now it's I actually hear that from her. Now she's getting older now, and she's got a whole different set of things that she's looking forward to, and she's trying to accomplish. And I'd always said it because I always looked at me being in my prime. Well, now I'm starting to, to get older, and she's coming up into that area, and she's like, now hold on a second. Now I'm the one that was born in a, in a rough time. <laughs> and so I said, yeah, point well taken, point well taken. But um, we're aware. We're aware of those things. We're aware of the times that we're living in. We're aware of the difficulty and the circumstances that are before. I'm sorry. No, I, I left the keys in the car. It's, it's on no, it can't be locked. Well, check right there behind the Bible, then. No, no, the, my Bible right there on the, or, or right there. Yeah, there you go. Hey! <laughs> I was getting nervous. I was like, oh, man. I didn't blew that one. See, oh, we just talk about hard times. Lock the keys in the car. All right, but anyway, let's get started under God's covenant with Noah. Central truth is that God desires us to live in covenant relationship with him. God likes covenants. If you don't think he, if you wonder about where he stands on covenants, just go back and start reading. And maybe that's not something that you pay much attention to, but I think that it should be that God is a covenant God. And, and as such, being a covenant God, we should look and pay attention to the covenants that he's established, why he established them, and then see where we fit in that covenant. You are under covenant right now. All of humanity is under covenant right now. Whether they've accepted it yet or not is a different story. All of humanity is under under covenant, and so the covenant right now is that is uh, we're in the uh, uh, dispensation of grace, which we are in this uh, grace period where we have a an allotted amount of time to accept the covenant that has been put before us, and to deny the covenant is to deny God. That's what's that's the era that we are in and the time frame that we're in. And so there's a lot of things on the table when it comes to covenant. And, and when God makes a covenant with people, um, and I think that's the emphasis here this morning, is, is that when God makes a covenant with people, he keeps his word. He keeps his part of it. And so just go back, just do your history, look to the Old Testament, if nothing else. Look at the covenants that he established with his people. Look at the promises that he made. Look at the way he backed them up. And look what happened when he said something was going to happen. I think about this often in the covenant that we're currently in. He said, if, if I go, I will surely come again. That's what I think about. He said, if, I, if, if I'm going to leave, you, you rest assured, I'm coming again. I'm going to come get you at some point. Do you believe that's true? Amen. That's covenant. That's covenant stuff. So uh, with that, let's look at, uh, let's get started. Promises are made and broken every day. 
Every election cycle is filled with promises of what this or that politician will do if elected. <laughs> I actually thought it was funny that we that this lesson, of course, it was probably put in there on purpose, knowing that we're coming to midterms. And um, we have a lot of uh, politicians who are going to make promises. And before we're too hard on them about that, let me just say that before we're too hard on politicians about making promises, I've also flipped that coin around and I asked myself, but if they didn't make any promises to you at all, would you, would you vote for them? Chances are the answer would be no. You wouldn't, you wouldn't even have one, nothing, nothing to do with them. You would think, well, he ain't going to do nothing anyway. They never talk about what he's going to do. But then when he does make promises, we get more hard on him. And we say, well, he's just going to make a bunch of promises he ain't going to fulfill. And sometimes I wonder if it's not so much the politicians, if it is just an unhappy group of people with the way things work. I'm just saying. <laughs> it, it, it could it could go swing both ways. Yes, am I tired of politics in the in the instance that people uh, say a lot of things and don't do those things? Yeah, absolutely. But I'm also tired of I'm also tired of bantering on the people's end that understand how things are are, are working or do work, or things have come to this place because of us. But yet we're still unsatisfied and unhappy. It's, you guys understand that as far as from a from a, a governmental and a and a elected official standpoint, the power's in your hands. The power's in your hands. You say, well, no, that's not true, Tanner. They they've taken that away from us. Uh, I don't want to really get into all of that, but I will tell you, the power is still in your hands. There's power in numbers. Even well-meaning friends make promises and fail to keep them, and parents sometimes break their promises to their children, often because of circumstances they cannot control. It's true, but both ways, I would say. But the promises of God are certain, and no circumstance is out of his control. Amen. Okay, do you agree with the control aspect of it? You agree that he keeps his promises? Okay, I agree with that too. Do you agree that he's always in control? I agree with that too. Now, here's my next question. How do you define control? That's an important question to answer and to answer it properly. How do you define control? God's, your view, the way you view God as being in control. What does that look like? Somebody weigh in on that. Well, everything is God's will, like it's all been laid out before. So okay. if it's going to happen, it's his will for whatever reason he laid it out to be. Okay, that's good. What else? Anything else? He can stop. He can stop it at any time. He can, if, I mean, just like the flood, just like the Sodom and Gomorrah, just, I mean, mm-hmm. when it gets too bad, or when he okay. says that's enough, I'm in control, it's over. Right, okay, like casting judgment, like, okay, <clears throat> enough's enough, okay, that's a good answer. What else, Pastor, do you have one? He seals the axis of the earth in iron degrees, no yeah. shaking going on. Right, that's true. Yeah, yeah it's all kind of... Hinging on, you know, very tedious things. That's a good point. Sean, you were going to say something? Uh, he also leaves it up to our choice most of the time. He'll give us the scenario. He'll give us all the options. And it's like, here, you make the choice. Yeah, I mean, even with Adam and Eve, he gave them the choice. Yeah. I mean, if he gave That's a kid, good. used a hot stove analogy, tell the kid, hey, stove's hot. Don't touch it. You go touch it, and it's like you're still going to get burned. Right. But you've got to learn that somehow. And if you didn't learn it from God telling you, hey, don't sure. go do that. Then you're gonna to have to learn the hard way. Unfortunately, right. I've had to learn the hard way. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Anybody? Can I get a, a show of hands of people who learn the hard way a lot of times? Hey. All right. We're all in this together. So yeah. So I want, the reason I ask you that is because how do you how you view God in the form of control makes a huge difference in the way that you perceive Him and the way the coming events happen on this earth. It's very important that you you have a a a healthy view of control because i've talked to a lot of people that have an unhealthy view of control their their view of control is more uh, as a when you hear them talk about it it's it almost sounds like dictatorship and socialism like god is up here and then he says you do this and you do this and you do this and it's got to be within this certain format and framework and 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 people's idea of control is is that God's going to make it happen the way he wants it to happen. Well, here's the thing. If that was the case, we wouldn't be here right now. Because God does does not make mistakes. Number one, God does not um, 
um, how do I say this? He, he's not the author of bad things. He's the, only the author of good things. So the, the, the place that we are in as a society is not on God. Do we agree with that? Amen. We, can, we can say that that's on the people, right? The, the idea that God has controlled this to bring it to a particular area, no. God gave us a choice, and we made a bunch of bad decisions as, as humanity, as people. We made a bunch of bad decisions, which ultimately landed us where we're at today. Did he know that? Yes, he did know. Did he know exactly what decisions those were going to be? No. And I don't, and I think that's the beautiful thing about control. It's like I have my, I, I always use my children as an example because I'm telling you, raising kids in the way that God does us, I mean, there's some huge similarities there. I hope you guys get that. Um, I'm in control of my children. Would you agree that you are supposed to be in control of your own child? We're in control of our children. I'm in control of my kids. They live, we all live under the same roof. But I also let them make decisions on their own. I don't have to know how they're going to make a decision for me to necessarily know how the ultimate income is going to turn out. I know some of, I know some of how their decision makings are in their nature. I'm like, you know, you don't want to put a cookie jar in front of Zale. <laughs> he might say no every once in a while, but eventually he's going to clean it out. Yeah. That's the way he likes to eat. I mean, that's just he just consumes everything. So I know I don't necessarily have to tell him, don't do or do. I know he knows what I've told him, but I ultimately know how this thing is going to pan out. Cookie jar is going to get cleaned out. In the nature of sin in humanity, I believe that's the same way that God looks at it. He doesn't necessarily have to tell you every last little jot and tittle or humanity exactly what to do on every single decision because humanity being born into sin will ultimately lead to an ultimate outcome. And so many of the things that God has spoken to us in the prediction of what was going to happen in the last days People have this idea that it was every little bitty decision. No, he just knows you. He gets you. He understands the nature of us as people. He knows ultimately, even with good decision making, that there's a whole lot of them that are not going to make the right decision. And it's going to keep pushing and pushing and pushing towards more and more perversion and more and more bad things. And so he sets this up and he says, well, this is what's going to happen. I, I, ulti I ultimately believe that Outcomes can be delayed. You believe that? I believe outcomes can be delayed. Now, can they be, be ultimately avoided? No, God, because God said, this is how it's going to end. I know that humanity is going to make that trip down that path one way or another, whether it's with me here or whether we were able to make good decisions and pray and, and stay devoted and dedicated and it stalls the process. But either way, it's going to go down that path. But it's not a manipulated set of decisions. God is in full control. He's in full control. And it's that he allows, and that to me really exemplifies how big he is and how small we are. It's like, you know, you, we send people to space. Uh, Elon Musk is wanting to go to Mars. Uh, we got electric cars. We got all this crazy stuff now. I mean, it's just unbelievable. It's like something you've seen in an 80s movie. But it's all actually all come to life. Not one bit of that is out of God's control. That's how small we are. That's how much, that's how much he understands how you function and operate. There's nothing that you can do to be like, whoa, man, they're kind of getting out there a little bit. That's a little bit too much for me. That's kind of outside of the, the realm of what I expect. No, there's nothing you can do that got outside of God's expectation. I mean, if you if you if you really want to look at it, look at the Tower of Babel. You know, look at look at the group effort that was happening there. I mean, God understood it. Now he had to he had to set, he had to stop it. He's like, you don't even know what you're doing. What are you what are you doing? And so, it was never out of God's control, was it? It's no different than today. It's none of this is out of God's control. He doesn't have to he doesn't have to come down with a with a rod and rule over you as a dictator to be in control. And to me. That's the most awesome and fearful form of control that you could ever have. Like, I don't have to necessarily tell you what to do, but I'm still in control. 
that's that's scary right in a very honest and humble way that's scary that kind of control it's powerful it's a good thing not a bad thing in this lesson we will study god's covenant or promise to noah he used the descendants of noah to fulfill the greatest promise of all time the promise of salvation noah showed his thankfulness to god for his deliverance soon after leaving the ark life on earth would be renewed and multiplied god wanted uh, no one to doubt that he would never judge the world in the same way again, promising no additional curse on the ground, no repeat of the flood, and a return to the rhythms of the natural world. Noah and his family, like believers today, were given great and precious promises on which to build their lives. And as I said before, God's a covenant God. His desire is, that, do you understand that God? it's God's desire that you live well? He wants you to live well. And, and I've, I've, I've always, we've talked about this in here many times, and, and there's a lot of different viewpoints on it, and I'm not trying to get you to decide with my viewpoint on it. it. It's not that. It's that I firmly believe, in looking at God's Word, and in my own personal experiences in life, is that if, if we follow God, if we follow after Him, if we put Him first, and we make sure that the things that we do for Him are of the utmost importance, that he will make sure that the other aspects of our lives are also rich. I'm not saying that you're going to have a bank account full of money. I'm saying that you would have, you would be rich in the form of experiences, in the form of wisdom, in the form of your children, and all these things. They would accompany you in your life. You would be rich. Um, it's, it's, um, it's too passive, in my opinion. It's too passive to attach God to just um, uh, physical means, um, um, prosperity in the form of, of uh, money, um, especially when, <laughs> especially when we're talking. If we're talking about prosperity in the terms of money and how weak money really is, I mean, I'm talking about the dollar itself, and that that power of, of money can go away like that, and and if by chance there was an, an economic collapse and you had put all of your eggs in the basket of God being attached to your prosperity, then how do you view God? How, how would you view God if that, was, if that was the thing and you always looked at God as being the God of prosperity and he always gives you money and, and, and if you just believe, well, you, get, you can have this and you can have this. Well, I mean, and that's all, that's all fine watching you prosper, but if that's taken away from you and that's the way you view God, then what's left? How would you view God then? If he was always the God of prosperity and always the God of money, and then the money, the power of the money was taken away, then how do you view God? And that's, all, that's the thing that always I always think about, because there's a lot of people. Do, do I personally think the economy um, will collapse? Yeah, actually at some point. I mean, historically, you can't get away from it. It's going to happen. Um, and without, <laughs> without getting into that, there's going to be a lot of disappointed people very surprised and blown away that that actually would be possibility, that that could actually happen. I'm just saying that we need to have a much better view of God than just being a God who gives us things. Uh, God, God does a lot of stuff for us. Mm -hmm. And um, being, being where we're at, we're very blessed people. I think we can all agree with that. We're very blessed people. Mm -hmm. And I'm very glad, very blessed, and very happy uh, to be born here in America. Um, Pastor and I talked about it before, and I think the, the chance was like less than 10% that you would even be born in America as far as overall you know, percentages of people, like less than 10%. It's kind of like turning the figure around if I said, you know, there's like a 92% chance that uh, you're not going to make it out of the day alive. You'd be like, what? 8% chance of survival. Well, there's an 8% chance that you'd be born in America in a prosperous nation to live in this kind of, these kind of riches. Never, never in the world, people. Never in the world, in the history of the world, has a nation ever been so filthy rich yeah. and prosperous as America. You're living in it. Man, that's, that's, that's amazing stuff. That's amazing stuff. It's also dangerous, too. So that's another story. All right, let's read some scriptures. Haley, please. Genesis 8.20, then Noah built an ark for the Lord, and there he sacrificed his burnt offerings to animals and birds that had been approved for that purpose. And the Lord was pleased with the aroma of the sacrifice and said to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of the human race, even though everything they think or imagine is bent towards evil from childhood. I will never again destroy all living things, as long as the earth remains. 
There will be camping and holes, holes and holes, summering and quarters today and not, not one. Then God blessed Noah and his sons and told them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Then God told Noah and his sons, I hereby confirm my covenant with you and your descendants. And with all the animals that were on the boat with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, every living creature on earth. Yes, I am confirming my covenant with you. Never again will floodwaters kill all living creatures. Never again will a flood destroy the earth. Then God said, I am giving you a sign of my covenant with you and with all living creatures for all generations to come. I will place my rainbow in the clouds. It is a sign of my covenant with you and with all the earth. The sons of Noah who came out of the boat with their father were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham is the father of Canaan. From these three sons of Noah came all the people who now populate the earth. When Noah woke up from his stupor, he learned what Ham, his youngest son, had done. Then he cursed Canaan, the son of Ham. May Canaan be cursed. May he be the lowest of servants to his relatives. Then Noah said, May the Lord, the God of Shem, be blessed, and may Canaan be his servant. May God expand the territory of Japheth. May Japheth share the prosperity of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. All right, thank you. All right. Part one, worship and blessing. Upon leaving the ark, Noah paid tribute to God for his saving power. As Abel had done centuries before, Noah brought an animal sacrifice and offered it before God on an altar, probably a mound of earth as God sanctioned uh, later. God had told Noah to take into the ark seven pairs of uh, seven pairs each of animals and birds fit for sacrifice. Some were now given back to him for Thanksgiving. Uh, you heard me say this last week, and I'll, I'll go ahead and say it again just for the sake of the lesson. Um, we're not sure exactly what sacrificial system that they were that was being used. The Levitical system had not been given yet to this point, so we don't really we don't we're not sure. We're not given a lot of history and a lot of homework on on what sacrificial system was being used. The thing to remember is that there was a sacrificial system. So this last week, I'm just saying it again. There was a sacrificial system that was being used. The fact that there was one and it was being used uh, tells me this: is that. <clears throat> We're not always, um, the, the Bible says that we, we perish for a lack of knowledge. We perish for a lack of knowledge. We just simply don't know. Or, or in other words, we're ignorant a lot of times. Can we agree that sometimes we're just flat ignorant? We don't know. It means we don't know. That's not, that's not a demeaning term. That just means you don't know. The thing about that is, is that you're right. You know, as far as serving God, there's a lot of things I don't know. But what this tells me is, is that, Regardless of not having a particular way of doing it, they wanted to honor God. They wanted to honor God. We want to honor. We want to do something. We want to make sure we're, we're doing this the right way. And so they did it. Even in whatever meager means that they had of doing it, they still wanted to do it. And so to me, that should be the basis of our of our day-to-day -day movements. It's like how many of you in here struggle with sometimes knowing whether something is permissible or not permissible by God. Anybody? Yeah, you wonder. You wonder about it. Is that, is that permissible? Is that a good thing or, or not? Okay, so how do we approach that? Well, I believe the way that you approach that is the same way that they approached this was, you know what? I don't know exactly if this is right or not, but I'm going to make my decision based on my desire to honor him. Based on my desire to honor him. I want to honor him. And so then, once you put that into play and you bring that into focus, then ask yourself the decision or the question, is it okay to do this? Most of the time, we're going to probably back away from it because we're like, well, I don't want to dishonor my God. Anybody with me? Mm -hmm. I don't want to dishonor my God. And so we back away from it. To me, this is just me, um, when my kids get instruction and then they hit this, there's this, um, like all kids, they want to find the gray area, right? Anybody say, you know, oh, you were that way when you was a kid, you want to find the gray area. Well, you never said this. And when my kids flirt with the gray area, it, it makes me angry. Why? Why does it make me angry? Because it feels like you're reaching, you're trying to take every square inch of leverage that you have to get as close to that thing as you possibly can. All right, so 
Now flip this thing. Do you think there's a bit of a motive, maybe a fleshly motive that you're not even aware of when we're trying to push into territory and we begin to ask God, is this right or wrong? I'm not sure. So I'm going to go ahead and do it. What are we doing? We're doing no different than the kid does. We're flirting with this gray area, and we're like, we're going to go ahead and pull this in. And sometimes I think God's like, oh, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> so you're telling me I have to tell you yes and no on every little thing? How about you just get away from it altogether? That's, see, that's the way I would be aggravated at my kids. I'd say, but you know I told you not to, right? Well, I didn't do it, though. Yeah, see, but you know what you're doing. That's what you would say. You would say that you'd say, but you know what you're doing. I know what you're doing. And I believe God says the same thing. Yeah. Say, so why would you even ask me a question like that? Why would you even ask me if that's permissible? You know, you know that's not right for you to be there. So why are you even trying to go in that territory? See, I, I truly believe that this is where this is at. Um, and, and for them, there's this honor system. So we see, I think that we should want to honor God in everything that we do, even in the gray area. It's like, well, this is a gray area. Should I, should I do this or should I not do this? Listen, there's a lot of places in the Bible that we could find and we could debate over throughout the day because there's not exactly what we would call a clear and concise answer. We could say, well, the scholars say this and the scholars say that. and there's just We come up to this one point and we're just not sure exactly what the total conclusion is. So ultimately what happens in a situation like that is it gets turned over to the people and the people have to use what? Wisdom. What do we do? How do we approach that? My thinking for you and my, my encouragement for you is to ask yourself, is this going to honor him or not? Is this going to honor him? Is this going to bring honor to the king? Or is there a chance I could dishonor him? Because to me, that shakes me more up than anything is that I could dishonor him. You know what? Nope. I'm going to get out of this because I don't want to bring no dishonor to the king. I, I just don't want to be found that way in fault. Okay. Um, God then promised he would not curse the ground again as a response to humanity's sin and that he would never again wipe away all living things through a flood. God also promised that the rhythms of the day and the year would remain in effect as long as the earth remains. Inside the ark, it was difficult to mark the passing of day and night and the flood disrupted the annual cycle of agricultural season. God promised that as long as the earth remains, the seasons would not be disrupted. That's true until the end. And then the seasons would begin to run together and you would not be able to tell one season from another. That is a pure sign that you were living in the last days, was that the, the, the agricultural seasons were messed up. The reason I, I talk about this agriculture aspect of it is because for quite <coughs> some time now, the agricultural side of it, especially in this area, uh, used to reference the Farmer's Almanac. The Farmer's Almanac was a very good source of information to be able to kind of prepare as a farmer for what was, what was coming down the pipe. It's not been very reliable. It's not been very reliable. Why? Because the seasons are changing and something is happening. There's, there's something going on with the thing that God had promised initially. So you just remember, he did <coughs> promise these things. He said, you know, I'm never going to mess that up again. But in the last days, you would start to notice the seasons would run together and you would not be able to tell wh what was happening. And so that's what we're seeing today. And I, I don't have to really get, hash that out. I think you all know. So God repeated the mandate from Genesis 128 that humanity was to multiply and to reign over other forms of life. The Hebrew word translated bring forth abundantly is also used to describe the swarming sea creatures in 120. So, so what was he saying here? He was saying multiply. Everybody multiply. I need you to replenish. The relationship of humans and animals now included the fear and terror, Genesis 9-2. Alright, so what Genesis 9-2 is referencing here is it says that Basically, what would happen is, is that animals, uh, fear would be instilled in animals to be to fear human. As see, that's a part of their ability to survive, right? Is is the fear of humans? So they survive. They they survive by this type of territorialism, right? Uh, king of the jungle, lion, that kind of stuff. The 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 bear. Uh, it yeah, absolutely. So there's a, there's a a bit of territorialism that he's installing back in animals again here and he's saying all right now it's now it's the human versus the animal again and you're going to hunt them for food this is how you're going to survive and then they're going to not give it to you easily because they're going to defend their territory 
You see, there's this fear that takes place here. Now, just let's keep going because there's some other part I want to make here, a point I want to make. Part of that fear would arise from God's blessing on con, uh, consumption of meat. However, every moving thing that lived did not include animals found dead or killed by other animals. Also, the blood, symbolic of life, had to be drained out before the meat was eaten. Blood would be used later in the sacrificial system, which pointed to Christ. So he's very, he's very specific about how that was to take place. In Leviticus, the blood, the blood institution was then, or I should say, the blood sacrifices were instituted, which pointed to Christ ultimately being the complete sacrifice. So, so blood was also a sign of the sanctity of human life. If a person or animal took a human life, God would require their life even if the guilty party was a relative with the uh, sympathies of other family members. By saying that human hands by saying that human hands would exact the penalty for murder, God was previewing human government and its role in keeping order and punishing wrongdoing. If you go back and look at that in verse 6 there in Genesis and research that, that's actually exactly what he was talking about is the institution of a governmental system. That was actually where you get your first preview of government. And what God was saying, God's, God was saying governments will exist within the within parameters to exercise a justice system and to make sure penalties were paid, things were done correctly, so on and so forth. That was always the job for government. And I'm not going to, I don't want to get into our government, but, or government as a whole. Government was never meant to be a controlling mechanism for people. It was meant to relegate, uh, delegate, and, and maintain a system which where people would prosper and grow and that uh, sanctions were carried out against wrongdoers, people that were trying to harm you know, other people, so on and so forth. You had a system set up. That was the way it was always intended. Now, ever since the inception of it, though, it's always went in multiple directions. Why? Because... God always left it up to people to decide how they were going to actually do that. But right here in verse 6, God was previewing government as a whole. He was saying governments are going to be a thing, and I'm just, you know, paraphrasing that. Governments are going to be a thing, and it's actually going to be something that you use uh, in humanity. And so, and it did. It actually happened. So because God created human beings in his own image, we must honor and not destroy human life. Everybody say amen. amen. We must not destroy human life. This image, although marred by sin, is still present in each person and must be treated with dignity and honor. It's kind of like the conversation that Nathan and I were having about some people like online and um, yeah, people People never cease to amaze me. Um, especially when you know Nathan and I are talking about some people that he's, he's had to deal with online that are quote-unquote Christian people. But they also believe in um, circumstantial situations where babies' lives, it's okay to take babies' lives, and it's okay to, to murder. That's what it is. Oh, it is. It's okay to murder. It's okay to do these type of things. And um, it seems to me that even so-called Christian people have forgotten what the original idea was. It was that we honor the image of God, right? We honor God's ability to create. And so... From the Christian angle, Christian argument, <laughs> that that should be the number one thing for all Christians is that we honor human life because we were created in God's image. That's like the number one thing. You were, all humanity, you know, was created in God's image. Now we're getting into some pretty dicey times where people are cloning things and 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 stuff's not even coming from. They're saying that men are going to have Babies and, and just the craziest, most perverted, most most perverted things that could ever come on the face of the planet. We're seeing them. And so, as a Christian, that's your argument. It's that human life, humans were created in, in the image of God, and we're supposed to honor that. And once again, it's like, well, how do you do that exactly? We're law with people with these ideas that keep splitting hairs. Well, how do you how do you how do you honor God? I can tell you how you honor God. You make sure you're not trying to manipulate a process that he created. Amen. Very dangerous thing to start perverting those things, especially telling parents, you know, if you want your kid to have blue eyes, we can make them have blue eyes, or we can make your kid have this or that. 
Oh, that's some scary stuff. Splicing DNA. DNA splicing. Telling you, we'll, we'll make your kid an athlete if you want him to be an athlete. We, we, can, we know how to do it. That is some scary stuff. Um, some, some eugenics, some Hitler stuff is what that is. All right. Part two, this is the covenant. The promise in Genesis 8.21 to never again destroy all life is echoed in 9, 8 through 11. The same God who judges also promises grace. Well, that's why I just mentioned that before. We're living in the dispensation of grace, grace time. In 6.17, his language is empathetic. Say that right? Emphatic. It's emphatic. Sorry, I said that wrong. Emphatic. I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth. In 9.9, he said, I behold... I established my covenant with you. What a major thing to say. Large thing to say. He promised that no flood resulting in universal destruction will happen again. And I think it mentions it down here, but I'm going to go ahead and... Where's it at? Okay, never mind. I'm just... There's a point I want to make right down here. Let's keep going. Every human being since the time of Noah has lived under the same wonderful promise. Human beings and animals were made free to obey his command to repopulate the earth without fearing that God would repeat this act of judgment. Didn't mean that there wouldn't be a judgment. He just wasn't going to do it that way. God pro uh, provided a token or uh, visible symbol of his covenant with humankind and all other life. Noah and his entire family had clung to the word of God for more than an entire year before leaving the ark. But the vivid memories of the flood would remain for a lifetime. I, mean, I always try to think, you talk about having an experience of a lifetime. Can you imagine seeing that with your own eyes? Boarding a ship? watching everything around you destroyed, and then the water's clearing, and you're the only living people on the mm. face of the planet? That's like something out of a movie. But it actually happened. Yes, it did. And it not ever, ever rained, right? Right. I mean, you're building a boat. Why would you have a boat? Exactly. There's no, there's no water here. This is why it was hard for them to understand that. And, some, and there's, there's a bunch of people who argue that idea, um, but... From what we can tell, there was only a, a deep mist uh, upon the earth that would water things in that to that degree. So a an actual rain to the degree of flooding, I mean, even a, a heavy rain had never been seen before. So the idea that he was going to flood everything, that was just unheard of. I mean, just no way. It's not going to happen. It's kind of like telling everybody today that Christ is coming back soon. It's like everybody's saying, no, there's just no way that's going to happen. We've been living this long. Why wouldn't we live longer? It's just not going to, it's just that way. We're living the days of Noah. Okay, so, but the vivid memories of the flood would remain for a lifetime and would be passed down from generations, uh, for generations to come. Got to tell your children about the experiences, right? Mm -hmm. Got to tell them. To remind people of his covenant promise to never send another universal flood, God made the rainbow a visible sign. Mm -hmm. Who owns the rainbow? God owns the rainbow. All right, so what's going on with the rainbow nowadays? Perversion. LGBTQQI plus. I mean, that's all kinds of that's all kinds of stuff. So, so the rainbow has been hijacked. We say safely say that the rainbow has been hijacked in the meaning of the rainbow. So, if you look it up, I mean, the rainbow. It's supposed to be about diversity. That's what they say. They say this is about diversification and all the colors represent different personalities and, and different people and things of that nature. Last Sunday night, I, told, I, I talked a little bit about um, the um, Azusa Street Revival. Some, some, of you, some, of the, some younger people are not familiar with it. Some of the, the older folks are familiar with that. that was, that's something they're more familiar with. And talking about the Azusa Street Revival, and this is an interesting thing to me because in the spiritual realm, this is just me looking at things from an outward, from an out, outside source. This is the way the enemy does things and the way the enemy attacks if we allow these things to happen. I want to give you just a little bit of history on that. Do you remember where the Azusa Street Revival took place? San Francisco, California. Right? San Francisco, California. So that's like that's a big deal, right? So do you know where the idea of the rainbow being becoming the pride flag originated? San Francisco, California. See, a lot of people think look at California and say 
well, you're just a putrid, nasty mess. Okay, I agree with you. But the reason things are as putrid there as they are, and this is in the spirit realm. What does the enemy do? He's like, oh, you're going you're gonna to bring the Holy Ghost into the picture? And so he forms an attack. And now look at the state. And look at the very location that such an honorable thing happened in the Azusa Street Revival to bring the move of the Holy Ghost or the Pentecostal movement to America. And now that's the origin, or the origin place of the rainbow being looked at as being a sign of homosexualism. Kind of doesn't seem right, does it? It's because it's not. And it's because that's the tactics of the enemy. He's going to go in and he's going to, I'm going to destroy everything here. Why? Because he hates God. And so that's not the only line I can draw. I mean, there's a lot of things over the years I can point to and say, I can tell what the enemy was doing there. He was upset about what took place there. And he, he was going to smash and destroy. It's almost like he want to make sure that there's not even a memorial left. I'm going to destroy every bit of it so you'll never know where that Holy Ghost come from. You're never going to know your history. That way, if we can erase it, then you won't be able to look back and be inspired by it. Now, that's the way I look at it. Now, that's I truly believe that. But Rainbow Covenant, the, the Rainbow Covenant started with God, then it was hijacked by some people in San Francisco, and they turned it into homosexuality. God promised to remember his covenant for all generations to come. The repeated language of this passage points not only to God's promise to remember, but also points to his desire that his people remember his covenant grace. Remember, right? Remember is very important. Um, I'm not going to, I don't want to ha just hash on it and hash on it, but um, how do you remember God's covenant grace? A lot of times people attach that to the day they were saved, right? You think about the day you're, you were saved. I, I have a tendency to think more about what I come out of, what I was rescued from, what I am deserving of, where it was going, and then it was intercepted. This is the part, in, in just my own experience of dealing with people, this is the part that makes people uncomfortable because that's an aspect of them they don't ever want to remember. I, I totally get that. But in order to properly remember what God has brought you out of, you're going to have to remember where you've been. You, you do. Did God forgive you from a spiritual standpoint and forget all of those things? Yes. I mean, we know that already. But people play with it like it's like unrealistically. Like you're going to forget. You can't forget it. So what do you do with the memory? Make sure you put it in the right place. Make sure you understand what you came out of. Because that's good and healthy for you to always remember what God delivered you out of so you don't ever go back there again. I mean, if you, I mean, realistically speaking, because I've heard people tell me this, they're like, I wish I could just forget everything that I've done. I'm with you. Yep. I wish I could forget everything that was done awful, that I said that was out of place, that was, that was done, that was whatever. It was just sinful. I wished I could, but a part of who I am is being able to remember those things. And if you were to forget, let's just say, let's think about it like this. Okay, let's just take your memories away. When we just take all of the bad things that you've ever done away, you might find yourself going back into them again. So we can't forget. You, you got to remember. You got to remember what God brought you out of. To me, that brings God the most glory. It is always remembering, man, he, man, he brought me out of such trash. Thank God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for bringing me out of that. And it just, it just bubbles, right? You think about where you come from. That's important. Don't, don't be afraid to remember what God has brought you out of. Not, not, I'm not talking about the sin per se. I'm talking about the deliverance. In the same way Christ has given us two ordinances, water baptism and the Lord's Supper, perpetual reminders of the new covenant made possible by his death and resurrection. Lord's Supper in reference to the sacraments, right? The communion. We know what that is. The, the, the blood in the body, that's, that's what that's talking about. All right, I'm going to finish up right here. Every human being on earth descended from Adam. Every human being has also descended from Noah and is a descendant of one of Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So that's true. It's kind of like, I mean, Adam and Eve kind of started from scratch. Noah and his family started from scratch too. I mean, they had to kind of watch everything just kind of grow. Um, 
giving God's command to repopulate the earth, each family spread out from the ark's landing place. Great spiritual victory may be followed by a time of great temptation. Do you agree with that? Yeah. I agree. I think that's true. But I also will say this, and I just want to make sure that I, I put this out there because it's something to chew on. When it says great spiritual victory may be also be followed by a time of great temptation. But I don't always attach times of temptation to great things to come. Well, why is that? Because it's in your nature. It's in your nature anyway. And I think I've, I've actually come over the years come across a lot of Christians that think more of on a, like a reward basis. Like, oh, the reason I'm going to do this right now is because something great is on the other side. Seriously, you, do you have to have a scratch and sniff sticker every time you do something right? You get what I'm saying. Do you have to be rewarded every single time you go through a temptation? That should not be the case. Why? Because it's your job. This is what you do. You carry the cross. You bear the burden. You go through things. I don't have, I don't, I don't, I've never trained myself in the, to have this tendency to think, well, you know, something good's waiting on the other side. I actually thought like that one time. And that euphoric moment that I was waiting on never happened. And I was like, well, so where's the big bang, you know? Well, that was a really hard trial. Where is the reward? Well, the Bible says it's been laid up in heaven. Amen. It's been laid up in heaven. And we're still looking for it down here. I think forget that stuff. I, we shouldn't care about that. Is can we get a victory from a spiritual perspective? Yes. But let's not attach answered prayer to to being tempted. You're just tempted because you're in the flesh, and that's just—I mean—you have to deal with the flesh. That's just the way it is. So, twenty uh, verse twenty describes the life of Noah following the flood, called a husbandman farmer or a man of the soil he planted a vineyard possibly celebrating harvest time in the renewed world noah drank too much wine became intoxicated and lay in his tent naked I, i'm i'm out of time here and i'm just gonna i'm gonna just delve into this briefly okay so we're all familiar with this story we're familiar with this this particular part in the in the bible so usually what happens now i want to say that the the lesson here is going to choose a narrative, and they're going to run with it. I have studied this. I have looked it over. I've listened. I've looked at a lot of different commentaries I, for for quite some time. There is not a for sure solid reasoning as to what exactly happened here, and why it ultimately turned out like it did. So I'm not going to pretend and sit before you and say, "Yeah, I'll tell you this is exactly what happened." The lesson's got this wrong. Let me tell you, let me point you in the right direction. I'm going to go with the lesson here because this is what's in the lesson. But I'm going to tell you that the idea that Noah committed a homosexual act with his son is debatable. Highly debatable. In the Greek, there's not a lot of theologians that support that idea. There's not a lot of theologians that support the idea. There's some theologians that support the idea that the act didn't even happen between him and his, his daddy. It actually happened between him and his mother. And there's an even a good argument for that. So in order for me to give this to you correctly, I have to tell you that as a disclaimer. <laughs> in order for me to be able to go through this, I'm going with the lesson. But I, I know that if I just go through this and you say, well, but Tanner, that was, there was a homosexual act that happened there. It's debatable, okay? We don't know what exactly happened. We just know that there was a curse that was given because of it, that the, the son of Ham was cursed, and something dramatically changed the face of the way this whole thing worked. So I'm throwing that out there. I've said what I need to say. <laughs> Let me read this. <laughs> this is the Bible's first recorded ex uh, example of drunkenness. This is why drunkenness is never a good idea. Yeah. All right? And what did we say earlier? What did I say? I said, if you wonder if you, you should or should not do something, probably better decide on the side of honor. If you are wondering whether drinking is a good idea or not, you better side on the side of honor. And the shame that often comes from it. Upon entering the tent and seeing his father naked, Ham disrespected him by spreading the report to his brothers. Debatable. Shem and Japheth then backed into Noah's tent and covered him. Their devotion to their father covered Noah's sin in a way resembling God's grace in dealing with Adam and Eve. When Noah became sober, he discovered what Ham had done, and he cursed Canaan, Ham's son. So, so, so the debate goes, 
uh, in theological standpoint, was why did he curse Ham's son, Canaan, in this situation? It is believed that Canaan was actually the one to first observe it. Then he told his daddy Ham, and then Ham observed it. But for the sake of, of the story, Ham, uh, Canaan's name was taken out of the uh, out of the actual text. I do not, I'm not trying to get you to side one way or the other. I'm just telling you that's where the argument came from. It may seem unfair for Noah to curse Canaan rather than Ham. However, Canaan may have witnessed Noah's shame first and reported it to Ham, or he may have otherwise participated in Ham's sin. Noah's pronouncement against Canaan was not a magical formula. God elevates and lowers people as he pleases. Amen. Amen. Noah wanted God to put Canaan's uh, family into a position of servitude to, uh, to their extended family. Noah also pronounced blessings on his other sons. He emphasized the curse on Canaan as a benefit to Shem and his descendants. He blessed the God of Shem. Shem's family would include the people of Israel, who were the earthly ancestors of Jesus Christ. Japheth was also blessed. Noah wanted God to expand his territory. Japheth's descendants covered Europe and much of Asia. Noah's wish that Japheth would dwell in the tents of Shem is believed by some to be granted by non-Jewish people. Uh, Non-Jewish people believe the gospel and benefit from the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What I want to leave with you is stay away from sin. <laughs> stay Because ultimately this led to a curse that changed the dynamic of the family forever. It, it, changed, it, it changed it forever. Um, there's a lot of things that we can glean, and I'm, I went over time and I apologize. I did that just for the sake of making sure that we were on. I didn't want to leave you, I didn't want to read this and then you think that that was a a narrative that I even fully supported because I'm not sure what happened there exactly, but I, I think there's a lot of good teaching there, and we talked about a lot of things this morning that point us in the direction that obviously, you know, as God uh, sets new covenant boundaries, that it's us, it's up to us to lean on the side of honor and, and not of disgrace, to make sure that we're honoring God with all of our hearts, with everything that we can. And if you have questions about things like that, you're wondering, you know, I'm not sure, is it okay for me to do this or not do this? Lean on the caution, lean on the side of caution that you may bring honor to the kingdom and not disgrace. We're out of time, guys. God bless you.